1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevintsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at sts underscore news. I would love to hear from you. Wow. Hold on. What was that? Was that an advertisement that played before the Peoples and Things intro? That's never happened before. What gives? Hey everybody, welcome to Peoples and Things. We're very excited to say that we have just joined the New Books Network, which is the largest network of academic podcasts in the world. The NBN currently has over 17,000 interviews with scholars, experts, and authors. Gets over 2 million downloads per month and is in the top 1% of all podcast networks in the world. You should check it out. The New Books Network supports itself through advertising, so you'll be hearing some of that in our episodes going forward. But honestly, I always thought ads would be coming if we were going to keep this show afloat. We'll be dropping a bonus episode sometime this week or next, explaining the partnership and also letting you know about some of our plans for the next year. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. I think the topic of race and technology is extremely important, not only for understanding our own time, but for understanding modern history in general. This is true both within the United States, and in the world abroad. For far too long, there has been far too little work on race and technology, though mercifully, this appears to be changing pretty quickly. Hallelujah. Additionally, and this is sad to say, a lot of stuff written on race and technology recently is pretty thin and not great, especially on the empirical front. Like, if the heart of your argument hinges on Google image searches, you may have just served us weak tea. But again, thankfully and mercifully, there is solid work out there, and more is being published every year. If you stick around, you'll be hearing interviews on more of these books on this show. You may know that I am currently working on a new book project called A Good History of shit jobs, which examines the changing nature of work in the United States from the 1970s to the present. One of the themes I'm very interested in in this project is how deindustrialization and other economic changes affected black workers, especially urban black workers. You could say that looking into this topic brought me back home because even the most cursory research turned up the book featured in this episode Workers on Arrival, Black Labor in the Making of America by historian Joe William Trotter Jr. It was bringing me back home because Joe is the Giant Eagle University Professor of History and founder and director of the Center for African American Urban Studies and the Economy, otherwise known as CAUSE, at Carnegie Mellon University, where I did my doctoral work. My interests at that time were pretty far afield from Joe's, but I have always respected his work. Indeed, his first book, Black Milwaukee, The Making of an Industrial Proletariat, 1915 to 1945, has in the years since I graduated become a very important work for me. Not only because it is simply a good book, but because its appendices include a historiographical essay where Joe lays out how historians and other scholars have thought about his topic since the late 19th century. I believe that essay is a masterpiece and I use it as an exemplar to teach graduate students how to do such writing. Workers on Arrival is the history of urban black workers since enslaved black people arrived on these shores and it comes right up to the present. Now, Joe doesn't emphasize technology as a theme in the book, but if you approach it with the eyes of a historian of technology on, it's easy enough to see. This long history is a story of black workers laboring in farm fields, establishing themselves as craftspeople, maintaining cities, migrating to urban centers, especially Northern ones, becoming industrial hands, fighting for rights and the dignity of work, and facing and resisting the costs of deindustrialization and the rise of the service economy. This is a story that goes way back but it's also the story of today. It's our story. I had a wonderful time talking to Joe who I have an enormous amount of respect for. I bet you're going to have a wonderful time listening to him. Hey, get excited. So much for taking the time to talk to me today
0: oh it's my pleasure uh lee
1: <laughs> so workers on arrival is is a great book i'm going to be using it in my undergraduate and graduate teaching for years to come and i've also found it very useful for my own research so when you explain to people mm-hmm. what it's about what do you say and what were you trying to do with it
0: you know that's a good uh lead off question um what i'm Trying to do is very much situated within the moment, Um, you know. Just before 2019, as you know, was the 400th anniversary of African American who, on the record, first landed in Jamestown. Mm -hmm. You know, so that uh, so that the book itself is a product of many years of research. You know, over my entire career, I've been working on these issues. And so I started in earnest to uh, produce this book um, probably about five years before 2019 hit. And I I worked feverishly because I wanted to complete this book in time for that um, anniversary. Uh, I knew there would be a lot of public celebrations, commemorations of that uh, 400th anniversary of African-American life in the United States. And I wanted to have something on record uh, that would synthesize the black experience from the beginning of the African-American experience to the yeah. present. And, 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 and so what I wanted to do though, uh, was to take it in a somewhat different direction than, a, than many other syntheses of black history uh, take. And that is, I decided to privilege the urban dimension mm-hmm of the black experience and the urban and working class uh, dimension of the African-American experience. And for me, uh, scholars had only just begun, you know, like late 20th, early 20th century to start in earnest uh, treating African-American life uh, from the colonial period forward as also an urban story, not just a rural plantation Mm -hmm. story of rice tobacco, and so on, uh, and cotton. It was a story also about the ways in which early Africans inhabited these cities and in many ways helped to construct uh, the urban infrastructure uh, in America. And so that book was designed uh, to address that anniversary issue, but it was also designed to Uh, introduce African-American labor history more forthrightly at the center of the story and to also put the black urban experience up front. And so that was sort of the basis uh, of that particular um, uh, book.
1: Well, I think you did a wonderful job, man. And uh, were there certain kind okay. of popular narratives that you were trying to challenge? I th- I was thinking about you know the first paragraph of of, of the uh, introduction or preface. I can't remember, and it was you know saying like you know like the whole image in our in American culture, sadly, of kind of like black people as takers and you know, and the white working class is like, you know, somehow put upon and all these kinds of things. I mean, were there a number of popular narratives you're trying to challenge?
0: Well, thank you for bringing that one up. That's another dimension of this story. Uh, This is not just about black workers, but also their relationship Mm -hmm. uh, to white workers and to American society more generally. Uh, But also it's a story about the black workers' relationship to their own community. Uh, especially the emerging elite and people who were educated and property. But yes, I I was very concerned about a race. uh, There was a race agenda, you know, like how has white workers perceived, and American society in general, perceived black, poor, and working class people over a long period of time. And I'm just struck by the consistency of treating these people as pretty much... um, like you said, takers mm-hmm. rather than producers, mm-hmm. um, and that these people, in some ways, lack a good work ethic. Yeah. You know that they they are not energetic. You know they are not um um uh, builders. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to uh, bring this whole question of productivity of black workers and their contribution to building uh American society. Mm-hmm. And, and not only just building the urban infrastructure, uh, and if the story had been about agriculture, it would have been about uh, Black people building the agricultural infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you think about agriculture, uh, cotton, tobacco, rice, sugar, all of those, the land had to be prepared uh, for the cultivation of these crops. And so that Black people were on board to actually pay carve out you know, the landscape and to create an agricultural and agrarian setting in which Black people would then labor within that yeah. setting to produce these staple crops. And so Black people were laborers from the beginning in both the the, the rural and the urban environment. Mm-hmm. And inside the cities, of course, they were also builders. They were laborers on these uh, construction projects, uh, and they were also um, maintenance workers once the cities got started, yeah. uh they continued to work uh to, you know, maintain and upkeep and to clean and to do all those other yeah. things uh that re- cities required. Uh so yeah, so there was a story about trying to recover, in a way, the vibrancy of black workers as producers and contributors yeah. uh to the society in which they were forced uh, initially to live, and later on as free people. Of color. Yeah,
1: Joe. One of the things I like to do on this podcast is kind of turn scholarship into a human story that it's done by human beings, and you know, who have their own personal trajectories. So, where let's just start. Where do you grow up, man?
0: Oh, um, Southern West Virginia. Oh, I'm, I'm a product. Yes, I'm a product of a coal mining family. Okay. My my father was a coal miner. Wow. Um, and uh, he worked in the coal mines for uh, over twenty some years before his death. Wow. Uh, and so I, and I, I, come from a large family. My family, I had, um, there were fourteen children yes. in my family, four, four boys and uh, ten. That's a lot girls. of sisters, man. Uh, a, a lot of sisters, <laughs> and and I get the benefit yeah. of that. that. It's been a great, it's been a great ride for yeah. me. They because I had five sisters older than me and five sisters younger than me. And so in a way I had to develop a kind of sensitivity to the power of women Mm. because, you know, a young boy can't go challenging, you know, sisters who were some, Mm. you know, (laughs) three, four, five, six years older. So they, they could check that that masculinity, you know? (laughs) Well, that's good for us. Yeah. so, 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 yes, I, 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 I really, and, but to, growing up in West Virginia, by the way, um, just uh, back in November, mm-hmm. you know, just earlier this month, um, my nephews um, and my three brothers, we got together to take them down uh, to the coal mining area that uh, I, that we grew up yeah. in, you know, their uncles grew up in. And we actually visited and toured a demonstration mine, and and there were about 15 of us, and we had a great tour, about two hours, inside a coal mine that has been refurbished and made safe, as mines can be, (laughs) for tourists to take. And so, um, so, yeah, so that heritage is important to me, and it really helped to shape the kind of historian I became and the kind of issues I would. Yeah, that's
1: great, man. And I, you know, you're, you have a book on coal, right? That's your one book I haven't looked at, right? Is that right?
0: Yes, that's Uh right. Coal, class and color. That was my second book, by the way. And I think that, you know, I didn't want to do, you know, that close-up story first, you know, I, and, and I had become much more uh, involved in, Trying to understand the urban, right? So that when I went to graduate school, yeah, the cities were on my mind. Yeah, please, you know? I was going to ask you how you became
1: a professional historian. So tell us that
0: story. Oh uh, <laughs> yeah, when I went to graduate, yeah. <laughs> well, you you're uh, asking a question that I'm happy to talk about. Um, when I went to graduate school, um, and I went to graduate school in the mid seventies, mm-hmm. um, and I had taught high school for 6 okay. years my wife yeah you know, my wife and I we we taught high school together but although she was at a junior high I was in in a high school um and after 6 years we decided uh that if we were ever going to graduate school we probably needed to go then mm-hmm. and 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 uh, she was really persuasive on persuasive on that and I I got on board with it and uh, I wanted to go to graduate school but I also like making a living yeah. and we knew we would have to give up our teaching job in order to you know scale back and just uh you know concentrate on yeah. studying so when I went to graduate school I went with the ideal that I wanted to do uh an urban mm-hmm. study and so I had both of us we went to a small Lutheran school called Carthage College oh. in Kenosha Wisconsin. Okay. and it's a Lutheran school and Carthage by the way was originally located in Carthage, Illinois. Uh, But the city of Kenosha gave them an incentive to actually move the campus from Carthage, Illinois out to a beautiful lakeside campus in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Hmm. So that's where we went to school. And that's where I met a lot of my friends uh, who lived in the Milwaukee area. Also, many of them lived in Chicago. But I wasn't about to do Chicago uh, considering the wealth of, Documentation much, of documentation right? of life in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just said we need some alternative yes, studies. Exactly. So, so, so I selected Milwaukee and I stayed with it. I never considered doing Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> but the irony is that much of Chicago's um, migration fed into uh, the Milwaukee yeah. migration. So people often had a stopover in Chicago or some other small industrial town. Then they moved to Milwaukee. And so, yeah, so when I got to graduate school, um, uh, cities were on my mind. I, I hadn't given very much thought at all to the idea that there was a study waiting to be done in the area where I grew up. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I was going to ask you about Black Milwaukee, which is a really important book to me. As I've told you, I use I'll talk more about the interpretive essay at the end of it in a second. But uh, I use it in my (laughs) teaching with grad students a lot. And, you know, I wanted to bring okay. it up because I think it's, you know, it's very workers on arrival is just, you know, another part of this long trajectory of, that you've been working on. And so, you know, tell yeah. people a bit about Black Milwaukee. Is it fair to say it's about this transition from rural, you I mean, it's about the Great Migration in many ways. And it's about this transition yeah. from rural agricultural work to urban industrial work, right?
0: Exactly. And I, yeah, I again, that's my foundational book. I yeah. Mean, it is for it is for i uh had the opportunity to think deeply about uh the black urban experience yeah Uh, when i went to graduate school by the way um i was coming from kenosha wisconsin Uh, my wife and i we were both uh active in community organizing in kenosha Mm -hmm. and and at that time the black power movement was in full swing and By the mid-70s, however, you know, like this whole idea of race first Mm -hmm. and the way black people conceptualize their future, you know, and their politics. Um, And so there's a great emphasis on racial unity, Um, you know, solidarity among people of color. Um, And so, but by the time, um, by the mid-70s, a lot of critics had started to raise the class question. Uh Uh-huh. And to really, yeah, they started to question this idea of overwhelming emphasis on the racial dynamic in black life. And they started to say, until we get a handle on these class dimensions of African American yeah. life, we're going to have an incomplete understanding of black history and also an incomplete understanding of yeah. American history. And so that's what sort of drove that's my interesting. study of Milwaukee. Huh. Yeah. And I, and so I had to really find a way to break out. Um, no, not totally break with it, but to really, you know, complicate yes. my racial understanding of the black experience uh, by bringing in the way in which uh, African-American, for example, the scholarship that dominated the literature when I studied in graduate school. And by the way, I went to graduate studies at Minnesota and there was a man named Alan Spear hmm. on, the, on the faculty. Okay. Alan Spear in 1967 had produced this stellar community study of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was like uh, the making of a ghetto in mm-hmm. Chicago. And I read that um, book, like religiously uh-huh. read that book. And I also read a lot of other urban stuff, but that was a real model yeah. When I hit graduate studies, I had just done a summer um, graduate course because as high school teachers, you had to uh, periodically go back to school uh-huh. and you would have to take some courses. And in this case, I went. I took a course in urban uh, history and I wrote a paper on black urban uh, life. Uh, had I not written that paper, I'm not sure I would have found my way into That's anybody's graduate school yeah. because I didn't have... I didn't have a great writing sample oh, yeah. uh, to give before I wrote that paper. Yeah. And and at that point I was accepted into the program at Minnesota. Hmm. Uh, and, so, and so in other words, the ghetto dominated scholarship and yes. it was a process. And I was taken by the way it helped under, us understand a lot about black life. But then as we talked more about class and tried to figure out ways to incorporate a class dimension. It became clear that the ghetto model was limited, yeah. and that it didn't it didn't go far enough toward illuminating yeah. some other. And so that's why, in a way, I sort of flipped, you know, the corner in a way, uh, over and and centered yeah. the dynamic of what I call proletarianization. Uh, I put that at the center of my analysis. Uh, and then I didn't deny that the ghetto was important, mm. but I, uh, I asked you to argue that you can understand the ghetto better by looking at. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was my <laughs> argument. You know? Well, Joe, yeah. I mean, this yeah.
1: kind of like the way you just explain that of like really getting into the the literature on the ghetto, but then seeing its limits and going beyond it and coming up with a new framework that incorporates what came before and doesn't just overthrow it or throw it away. I mean, like, yeah. dude, that's your spirit in a way. Like, when I read, like, the, when I, <laughs> I teach, so I teach an appendix in Black Milwaukee, which is a historiographical essay on black urban life that you wrote. And I think it's just oh, one of the okay. great historiographical essays yeah. ever r- written, and I yeah. used to teach it, like, students how to do it. But then I was reading okay. Workers on Arrival... Um, And, I, I, you know, initially, I I didn't notice the essay on sources at the end. I was just focusing on the book. You know, I I didn't I didn't listen to Scott Sandage (laughs) and read the table of (laughs) contents closely enough. So a couple of days ago, (laughs) I started reading that essay on sources and workers on arrival and you did it again. I mean it's so <laughs> And so like I was going to add cuz I think it's so important mm-hmm. as a teaching thing like yeah. your spirit you really yeah. read people deeply and you really mm-hmm. try to understand mm-hmm. the history and historiography of the literature on your topic yeah. but then you're 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 yeah. not uncritical like you're critical but you're generous you know mm-hmm. and so oh, I, well thank you yeah, so I just wonder <laughs> okay. like how would you learn how to do <laughs> yeah. that man like I, did
0: uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think graduate school was a major uh, place uh, for me to begin thinking about ways to grapple with large amounts of scholarship that you may not be able to really deal with in any great depth, but you really needed to understand at least the sort of the core yeah. uh, uh, you know contribution. And also I just believe strongly, that we don't ever just invent the will. We're building on uh, other people's work all the time. And it really helps to enrich our understanding when we can show that um, for a moment we can just say, okay, let's try to understand this book from the vantage point of the author's real intent. Yeah. You know, what are they trying to do? And try to give them a a, a stage in your work where you can acknowledge, okay, here, this book really it doesn't say everything I wanted to say, but it says something yeah. important. So I'm going to try to give them some credit there. And it makes sentences, I think, for me, a little bit more manageable mm-hmm. uh, and also more defensible because people work hard to produce their yeah. work. And even if you find other sources that can say this, um, what you wanted to say, it makes sense to, I think, to acknowledge that there are some other people working in this vineyard and the more we can acknowledge that the better we are and it creates community yeah. you know people are part of a network of scholars who build on each other who appreciate and reinforce so that's my that's sort of my yeah. my uh, way of wanting to deal with that kind of thing and i know it's limited you know nobody can really grasp uh, all that's important in the field and i always understand that uh when i look at the literature i'm doing a piece yeah. of it in a way from my vantage point, but hopefully it is helpful. That's what I, that's what It I is say. helpful,
1: man. And, and I want to ask okay. you one more question before we kind of jump into um, talking about workers in arrival in, in detail. And do you consider yourself a labor historian? Is that part of your identity?
0: You know, I, I came to labor slow freight in a way, because as I said, my orientation uh-huh. and my foundation was grounded in a highly uh, race-conscious analysis of the African-American experience. So I consider myself an African-American. Okay, yeah. Right? And so that means that I take race seriously and I try to see how black people across all kinds of internal divides, whether it's gender, class, age, generational. Yeah. They, they, black people share something Yes. Uh, around that whole process of racialization that is taking place in America. So I try to claim, you know, I am an African-Americanist, but within that framework, I'm an an urbanist. Uh You know, Uh I I claim the urban, uh, myself as an urban historian um, in a real way, that sort of the setting in which most of my actual analysis takes place inside the urban context. And then on the other end of this, because I'm trying to develop a more class-conscious mm-hmm. uh, study of the Black experience, uh, I, I do claim, and I do that from the vantage point of labor and working-class people. So I do claim labor as one of the areas that I am, you know, committed to, yeah. uh, rather than claiming that I'm a historian of the Black middle class. Yeah. You know, I, I talk about the Black middle class a lot, but I don't claim myself to be a historian. Of the black male okay. yeah, and what, yeah, so that, so yeah, so it's uh African American urban and labor history. That's the sort of
1: working sort class of, history. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, um, so jumping into workers on arrival. I mean, you know, we are, you know, we should know that. Black people were brought to these shores, as you said earlier, to, as slaves who, you know, were lives were focused on agricultural production. But by the late 1700s already, there are populations of free blacks working in American cities. So, yeah. so tell us a bit about the genesis of the black working class and, you know, how it emerged and what its early characteristics were.
0: Yes, okay. Um, well, you know, one of the things I try to do in the book is to acknowledge that the black urban working class and the enslavement of black people unfolded almost simultaneously mm-hmm. in, the, in the north and the south. Mm-hmm. And so some of the earliest residents uh, in New York, you know, Boston, Philadelphia. Williamsburg,
1: all these places, right?
0: Right, and then we got Charleston, New Orleans, yeah. Richmond, Baltimore, and so on. So so I see that, uh, I I try to make the point that in many ways, Black people entered the kind of urban port places, you know, places that were ports, cities, even before they started to ship out, you know, to the plantation, you know, and so that we need to really Treat these environments in sync Mm -hmm. um, because they are unfolding almost simultaneously, Uh, and so that. uh, But I do make the point that the colonial period, you know, this, you know, for lack of of a better term and way of framing it, I do treat the the entire period before the Civil War pretty much as the pre-industrial age. Yeah, sure in African, you know, in African-American life. So that, but, and that it was a predominantly agrarian Mm -hmm. age because most black people were, in fact, uh, cultivating sugar, cultivating tobacco, you know, um, rice and cotton cotton later. And I try to make the point that cotton is a later product because I think the popular community often think cotton was yeah, you know yeah, like yeah. an enduring almost unchanging that that was the crop they don't realize that it was a process yeah. of different crops and that cotton came later mm-hmm. but once it came it overwhelmed yeah you know the economy it became the driver right. you know of the uh, capitalist development of the nation and in many ways the world global yes. capitalism uh, so i try to make that point and that black people were at the center, at the labor center of this. And you know, there's a lot of literature as you know now, um, You know, um, uh, Johnson, uh, yeah, Beckert, yeah. Uh, Baptist, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of those guys, they have really fleshed yeah. out the whole capitalist relationship to slavery and race. Yes. And so we got a good body of literature to build that economic you know scaffolding, but I try to really uh, go directly to the experiences of blacks in these economies, mm-hmm. and so um, I'm I'm very attentive, I think, to the workplace, yeah. and so that in the workers on arrival, I really build upon, uh, you know, the sort of, you know, one actually i don't do too much of the agriculture and workers on the right yeah, well, you don't have takes, to right it's but, not your but, focus yeah you know? but but yeah but i i acknowledge yes. that uh, and so but then moving into the cities I, I i tried to make a point uh that um black people were not just general laborers in the cities you know uh unskilled whatever however we want to put it uh that they, they were crafts yes. men and women and that was an important component of the pre-industrial workforce—that black people were part of an artisan yeah. class. And and in some ways, I argue that uh, the period from about the end of the American Revolution uh, to the first decade or two of the 19th century—that some people have suggested that that was a golden age of the black artisan, right. because because was, you know so there was a significant you know, body of people who were carpenters, yeah. blacksmiths, coopers, uh, all of those uh, craft. But by the um, late antebellum period, uh, these black craftsmen were on the down. Yeah, slowly. dude, that was it was eh,
1: fascinating for me. You know, yeah. I love that early yeah. craft uh, early, early okay. Republic stuff. You yeah. know, I'm kind of nerdy about that stuff. Well, uh, okay. I didn't know this story. <laughs> okay. um, and then you kind okay. of, you know, you one of the stories you tell is that, you know, it the reason it's on one of the reasons it's on downturn is because it's kind of being attacked from all these different sides. There's mob violence. Yeah, there's European immigration. Yeah. Uh, There's all these efforts to so-called repatriate, you know, free blacks to Africa and other places. And as you put it, early African-American workers and their families would not take these limits on their freedom without a fight. So tell
0: us a bit about how
1: how they resisted and tried to make a space for themselves.
0: Yeah, that's good. Lee, I'm really just um, uh, very appreciative of the way you have. Uh, really zeroed in on some of the things that I was hoping people would take <laughs> away from the book, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there there is this. Um, it's almost like the the old story we would say that there are victimization histories yep. of Black people, yep. um, and and for many you know decades we understood we had to write that history because there was so much denial of the way in which Black people were exploited, denied rights, mm-hmm. and you know, sort of trampled, trampled on. And so we needed to write that history. Um, but I do give a lot of attention to the idea that, look, these people were not just, you know, victims of these conditions under which they lived and worked. Uh, they were also thoughtful people yes. who um, envisioned different ways that they could um, affect changes in their lives, both their, their work lives, the lives of their families, their communities. Yeah. And so all along the way, whatever the work regimen may have been, and however unjust that regimen may have been, I tried to talk about ways that black people intervene into that system. And they help to modify some of the impact. Uh, and you know, one of the one of the things drawn directly from labor history more mm-hmm. generally is this whole idea of, um, of um, uh, transiency, mm. you know, leaving a yes. job, you know, quitting, mm-hmm. quitting. And then in the case of the enslaved, fugitive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fugitive just, you know, and so the fugitives in a way dovetail with the behavior of free workers. Yes. Uh, it's only that they are stealing away, yeah. right? Their own time, their own bodies. And then free workers are sort of saying, oh, I'm not going to.
1: I'm out of uh, here, man. You
0: know, say, uh, <laughs> right. Exactly. That's it. And you hear a lot of that today, yeah. right? <laughs> so, so that was one strategy, yeah. you know, and I like to make, make that. Because you see, that strategy um, created a lot of misinterpretation of the Black workers' experience. They were called unstable. Uh, they were not dependable because look at them. They're yeah. moving all the time from one job to the next. They don't stay in place. They're not, mm. you know, they don't, they're, they're, they're not stable. Right. They're not reliable. They're not dependable. Right. And so we had to reshape that narrative into one in which, wait a minute, did you talk to these people about why they're leaving? Yeah. Uh, and, and when you do investigate uh, the underlying causes for leaving, You begin to see a different interpretive frame uh, for understanding. So yeah, so that's one strategy. uh, But the other one, the other one. There are a lot of others, but uh, I put a lot of emphasis on their, um, you know, building families. Also, you know, they 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 work hard to build families and and to really create opportunities to really, um, you know, connect, you know, with their kin. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's, that in a way was a strategy, but the community yes. building beyond that was especially vibrant. Uh, they uh, tried to build, initially they were in informal networks, you know, with uh, different people would connect with each other without any formal apparatus, uh, but they knew that they could depend on each other in different ways. But then they started to build these organizations. And so churches, yes. fraternal orders, small businesses, All those things start to come to the fore. And so I like to, at one level, reinterpret uh, Black entrepreneurship as a labor strategy, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as a strategy toward trying to become middle class. You know, so that if you're really a worker who, uh, you know, you feel like you've got skills, but those skills are not recognized, then you feel like maybe I could market my own Uh, Skills, You know, I can go into the marketplace. Maybe I can even hire some other African-Americans and we can really liberate ourselves Mm -hmm. uh, from these ways. You know, some of the. So, yeah. So there are a variety of tactics that I like to uh, explore and to bring to the forefront.
1: Well, it's fascinating. Uh, You write Mm -hmm. about how following the Civil War and emancipation, black people, initially, you know, often idealized a land ownership and agricultural life. But these dreams were undermined by a number of factors, including white power and eventually the rise of Jim Crow and all these kinds of things that are kind of familiar. So how did emancipation yeah. kind of set the stage for the rise of the black urban industrial class that you've been studying for so long?
0: OK, yeah, uh, excellent question. I This period is... Um, Pivotal moment in African American history, um, because for the first time, at least in legal terms, African Americans are free. Uh, they are entitled uh, to the same rights, privileges, immunities, yeah. you know, as all other citizens. But uh, but the truth is, they don't get equal access mm-hmm. uh, to those rights. Uh, but it's important. I I I, I don't argue that. Emancipation was of no consequence, even even during those early years where we began to see the so-called black codes and all of the violence and all of the uh, suppression of freedom uh, of the emancipated people. I I, I just can't make the argument that it was slavery by another name. You know, just it. it, it, There was something different Mm -hmm. about freedom. And so I try to make the point that. Uh, it was real. Blacks had more option, uh, but those options were stymied time and time again uh, by some practices. Uh, by almost everybody, mm-hmm. played a role in in undercutting. You know, the the um, the state was a partner in suppressing mm. uh, the free engagement of blacks in the economy. Uh, of course, former. Uh, Landowners, ex Confederates, they were very much involved in undercutting the capacity of Black people to be free, and even the um, the philanthropists mm. or or the reformers or or the people who came from n- from the North to the South to sort of set up yeah, these schools yeah. and mis- missionaries, they also reinforced a kind of um, uh, um, a coerced. Yes status for for blacks. And and the major way they did that is that they were so riveted to this ideal that black people had to be made to work for wages. Yes. And that, that that if they were not forced to work for wages, they would not mm. work. So there was a real uh racial stereotype operating among the most liberal yes. of black
1: our lives. Yes.
0: And that there was a sense that they needed some form of coercion uh, to do the work. And so some of these freedmen, rural policies and so on, uh, they came close to denying people food and and Mm. shelter in order to force them into the workforce, uh, with their former, you know, uh, owners. And and so, yeah, yeah, and also with the the northern capitalists moving south, they saw this emancipated Black labor as a real boon to their own riches. And so, You begin to see them opening up timberland, opening up coal fields, uh, setting up cotton mills. Mm -hmm. And uh, so northerners were very much it was a collaboration. Northern and Southern capitalists, they collaborated on the exploitation of black labor. Mm -hmm. And so the emancipation period uh, really um, undercut, you know, the um, the freedoms and and the labor um, experiences of Mm -hmm. blacks. During that period,
1: so you know the Great Migration in way in many ways I think is a fairly well known story in U.S. history. I mean, there's been PBS specials and best selling books on it. Um, you know, and it's yeah. important. It gives us, among other things, like cultural things like electric blues and you know urban yeah. jazz i'm i'm a big i'm a big john lee hooker fan and chess records fan and all that stuff you know oh, okay. and okay. you know motown mm-hmm. and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff these beautiful expressions of african american mm-hmm. urban culture but you know i wonder yeah. what you know i wanted to ask you what do you think is missing from kind of like standard accounts of the great migration that maybe we need to complicate this story a little bit
0: you know i've seen the great migration undergo a profound change you know so um at this point uh there are just a few areas that i could point mm-hmm. to uh because you know for a long time we just didn't treat the great migration as a process that blacks themselves helped to uh-huh. shape you know it was always something that was done to blacks. even when they moved out of the south they were not moving on their yep. own volition yep. you know they were being you know pushed mm-hmm. <laughs> pushed out um, and or pulled into the north, that that even mm-hmm. settling in northern indus- industrial areas were not part of their, it, it was part of the recruiters uh-huh, in the northern uh-huh. industry going down and pulling them north, yep. and, and they just didn't have very much agency in that process mm-hmm. at all. And so that's no longer a story, yeah. you know, that we have to correct. That story has been told. And by telling that story of Black agency and the Great Migration, it just opens the door for us to see more vibrant parts of that. And I, I think the music and the art that you were talking yeah. about, um, that was a blind spot that people weren't treating it as much as a powerful mm. way in which Black people were speaking uh, and shaping yeah. you know, the, the Black urban experience. So you know, there's not a lot that I would uh, be able to turn mm-hmm. to 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 for you to think about the next wave of migration studies, except there is one uh, recently, you know, like that moment I was telling you the the 400th year yeah. anniversary uh, of the African American experience in America. You can see that sort of shaping. That's a different moment in Black history and some other things happening. You know, like at that point, that's Obama. We've had the first- Yes, yes. I watched his uh, swearing
1: in with you in uh, the seminar room at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fond memory of mine, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, well, that's interesting because that was a major milestone. And so, so, yeah, so I had to think about, uh, and see, that was such a great milestone that it forced us to see the contradictions more stark terms than we had previously. Because most of us historians, we were convinced that we would have to wait another half yeah. a century or a century before that happened. And so we got caught off guard. <laughs> Black yeah. historians, the, we got caught off guard. We didn't know how to yeah, quite yeah. even respond. I think right? you said that at the time, uh, the, so at least you were <laughs> <yeah>. self-aware. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that was something. Um, but but Lee, over the last five years, let's say over the last three mm-hmm. years, um, well, Trump was elected in 2016, yeah. right? So, so we can just say over the last five years or so. Um, and even over the last year, the landscape keeps changing, yeah. right? We keep getting these, these signals that are very mixed and, uh, you know, they're... Um, I'll just say contradictory. You know, for example, the election, the midterm election 2022 in Black history term, man, produced some amazing performances on the part of Blacks. Even when they lost the election, they were making, you -hmm. know, making a bid and and a serious bid and and making serious inroads on the electorate. right? And so you have that happening. And then in the same year, I think roughly within roughly the same year, you have Buffalo, you know, like Yep, yep, this, yep. You yep. know, mass killing in Buffalo in a supermarket. Yep. Uh and then you get Ketanji um Brown Jackson mm-hmm. uh, becoming the first female Yeah, Supreme Court. Supreme yeah. Court Justice. Yeah, and then not to mention um vice president, mm-hmm. you know, of the of the United Kamala mm-hmm. Harris. And so you try to and so now this is the moment, and then we got the attack on the nation's yep. capital, um, and the threats to American democracy, and and now we have to, as black labor and urban historian, we've got to write. And then we got the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We got the pandemic, so we're situated in this moment. And so to answer your question, the pandemic is the one I wanted to point to. I think the next wave. Of uh, migration research, urban research, got to take care of that health issue. Yes, got to connect African Americans to uh, past pandemics. Yes, past epidemics, totally past disease. I hear you. Past, yeah. you know, in the in the medical. So I think that is another frontier to be crossed. Yeah. in. and and because many of these African Americans, for example, if you say, what made black people migrate? Yeah. We're good at economics, we're good at education. Yep. We have not said that black people move to get better health. Yeah,
1: totally right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And frankly, uh, Lee and my own family, I have a brother who just wrote a memoir on his oh. life, but he incorporated the Charter Family and it's a memoir on medical experience. Oh, interesting. Because he was born with congenital heart uh-huh. disease um and he had multiple heart operation across his lifetime he's still living and you know doing pretty well but struggling yeah. still uh, you know but he wrote this book um and one of the things that stand out in that book to me is how our mother after our father passed away one reason we moved from coal camps to small town in Ohio mm-hmm is so he could be closer to yes. medical treatment. Yep, yep, yep. That there was no way he was gonna get a hard you know, surgery yeah, you. in in the cold yeah. town. So 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 that's an area that I think is wide open. Yeah, that's cool. And you know for yeah for this next mm-hmm. wave. And there's a lot of technology stuff
1: oh absolutely right now you're out in this medical <laughs> this
0: medical field. Yeah. Uh it is uh, so yeah, so that's an area. Yeah. And actually, I'm trying, I wrote an essay for a book called Pandemic Divide, Uh and I wrote an essay in there, and that's where I really go into details about the way African-American work Uh exposed them to all these diverse diseases and opened a way, um, ultimately, uh, for something like, you know, COVID to hit with a vengeance uh, on that particular population. That's
1: great. I'll send you, I'll try to remember to send you, there's this... uh... There's an edited no, collect um, what do they call it? Special issue where a bunch of historians okay. wrote about Thomas Piketty's new new book, Capital and Ideology, and one of oh, the okay. one of the best essays in there is about um, inequality in health. Um, and health, oh, and by yeah? a historian oh. Johann Matthew, who I think is at Princeton or Rutgers, Rutgers maybe. And oh, I'll yeah. send it to you because uh, I think it connects deeply to what you're talking about. We need to get more into the kind of embodied history of <laughs> health history and how it yeah. played a role in all this stuff. Yeah.
0: I would yeah. like that. I would appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Can
1: you tell us about the the racial job ceiling? And one of the reasons this is kind of an industry in when black people started working in mm-hmm. industrial jobs. One of the reasons I'm, I'm yeah. interested in this question is I see a tension here between. The I mean, and you draw out this tension between the opportunities that industry provided black mm-hmm. workers, but also how right. there was um, limits that they're constantly bumping e- up to. E-
0: exactly. Well, Lee, I, I am just amazed that, you know, the way you you've dealt into these issues, that's a major issue in African-American labor and working class history. Uh, and see, one reason why it's such a, significant and daunting part of the story is because the great migration generated a lot of excitement mm-hmm. among among black people i'm talking about working class you know like grassroots black yeah. people you know from the bottom up uh moving to chicago was a great move for a lot of people they celebrated that yes. move in yes. term um and to detroit mm. To New York, all of those cities, uh, as difficult as life may have been, um, it was hard to squash that optimism yes. about life in those cities. Um, and part of it, no doubt, had to do with uh, the racial environment. You know, having to tiptoe around Southern Jim Crow on a day to day basis was different from having to live in Harlem or the South side of Chicago, even though we know that the roots of lethal policing starts early in the Great Migration in those places. But compared to the South, you know, for at least a moment of the Great Migration, those things um, seemed like, you know, there was a breakthrough, you know. So, So the job ceiling and then getting jobs, by the way, let's say the First World War. Black people didn't get a lot of jobs above what we would call the baseline mm-hmm. unskilled, so-called unskilled general labor job. They were just getting them inside the okay. factory. But they, they for the most part, that first wave did not get a lot of operative yeah. jobs. You know, Jobs as operative. Um, and so they were more or less doing the same thing inside the factory that they were doing outside the factory. Yeah. But they were inside the industrial economy, and therefore, their proximity and their engagement with the workplace sort of opened up, you know, some channels yeah. for them to experience some gradual movement into some of these production jobs. Um, but, you know, the meatpacking industry is a great yes. example where they were just cleaning. You, did you see that, that film called The Killing Floor?
1: I haven't seen it yet, No.
0: Oh, you, you, with your labor yeah. interest, The Killing Floor would be a great okay. film for your undergraduates. Yeah, it, and it's just been refurbished and put out okay. again. David David Brody played a role in, in advising on that okay. film. And recently they just put it out on DVD again. So you can get okay, a, cool. get if you can, get a copy of that. It, and it shows black workers in there. And it also shows, uh, black workers and white workers trying to bridge that, Mm. that, um, racial divide and create a union Mm. in the, um, meatpacking houses. Mm. Um, but yeah, the job ceiling, uh, it, in many ways, it was, um, a ceiling that was reinforced by both industry Mm. and workers, white Mm -hmm. workers, white workers were very protective of their, you know, their turf, uh, on those jobs and so they created some pretty stiff barriers uh that black people had to navigate in order to get into those and by the jobs. way
1: i mean this is um it connects to our health discussion we just had too because like you know i know the automotive story uh best yeah because you know that's that was okay. my research early on and like you know black workers were often yeah. doing like painting and all these very dirty very healthy right. and d- d- detrimental jobs you know exactly yeah
0: Exactly, you got it, and in fact, this um, essay that I wrote about this—that was one of the, you know, very hazardous jobs. Yeah. That really uh, undercut the health of black workers. So yeah, so that job ceiling—I would just say that it was a pretty stiff, uh, and and also the skilled trade yes. unions. You know, the skilled craft unions—they had explicit barriers. Yes on black people entering these trades. So, um, you know, going into a factory and having to become an operative yeah. was a step, step down for many white workers. But once they had to do that work, they weren't about to relinquish it yeah. uh, for black people to easily come in and become machine you know, operators. So
1: let's carry, I mean, one one of the things I, I've, it's really starting to come out to me in, in our discussion of your book is this kind of dialectic where you move into a historical moment in the in the book And then you then you the dialectic is instead of allowing the victimization narrative to reign in every historical moment, you you then you turn to what black people were doing, you know, in through their own efforts. So, you know, with the with the with the racial job ceiling, you write African-American workers deplored their tenuous hold on urban industrial jobs, homes, social services and justice before the law during the years of the Great Migration. And you say, you know, yeah. some considered her heading back south, but most stayed and, and worked to to, yeah. you know, strengthen their hold <laughs> uh, position in society. So what are some of the ways they reacted, you know, and tried to do that?
0: Yeah, well, again, um, you know, leaving yes. jobs on a regular <laughs> basis, that turnover, that turnover rate was enormous. Yes. Uh, and. um the other way is that they started to organize uh, their own, you know, labor mm-hmm. unions um, to try to get some traction in jobs. But the ironic part is the most famous of these labor unions by the 1920s was the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in the Railroad. Mm. and those jobs were essentially domestic jobs, right? Right, right. right. Uh, cleaning training yeah. cars, but there were some black railroad unions and uh, 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 some what you might call um, carpenters unions, some brick mason unions, all black Uh unions. That was another strategy that they used to try to compete um, in the labor force and to create more opportunities for themselves. And and during this period, uh, one of the things I'm beginning to look at more now is that uh, some of them actually started construction companies or oh, uh, that mm. they would try to, yeah, they would try to employ their own mm-hmm. people, get contracts to build black churches, uh-huh. repair black churches, other institutions to really help themselves. Yeah. Um, and and also, of course, they, they joined the NAACP and, and started to level yeah. legal uh, struggles against some of these barriers that they knew were unjust. And that should have been challenged, you know legally and in the courts. Yeah. So the strategies are numerous. Yeah. Um, and but the way I argue for the interwar years is that ultimately uh, there was a convergence of middle and working class black activism, mm. so that racial barriers were so strong that limited black access to education, uh, to training, especially hospital and nursing mm-hmm. you know schools that there was a way in which black communities converged huh. uh-huh. and created a sense of solidarity in building some of these uh separate and what i call the creation of the black metropolis yes. they thought to build their own their own city within mm-hmm. the city uh to try and service their own needs uh within that including employment mm-hmm. needs. and in fact one of the great arguments for black business. With that it becomes a vehicle for mm-hmm. employing Black mm-hmm. people. Uh, so Black business people were, were pushing that line and then Black working people were also, of course, pushing to mm-hmm. get alternative employment. So the, uh, and so there's a lot going on, a lot yes. of strategies cross-cutting, some of them in tension, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. because there are times when, when the strategies were in opposition yeah. you know to each other
1: yeah and i mean i should just say i mean like there's so much in the book that we can't cover in, a, in an interview but like but one yeah. of the things that i really like about the book is that you do go over through so many strategies so i think i would just direct readers you yeah. know that's one great reason to read the book um
0: yeah okay. um
1: you know so one of the things you know i think that this is well known in your historical circles but i was thinking about you know how in popular culture we tend to focus on the story of the civil rights movement on segregation and like buses and lunch counters and all these things and for good reason right i mean there's there's those are important yeah. stories but what your book really draws out so centrally is the the labor and work as- aspect of the you know of the 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 yeah. what you call the modern black freedom struggle so you know, but you say, you write yeah. by, by 1970, the modern black freedom struggle had demolished the Jim Crow order. And we, you know, I think we know in general outlines that story, but you know, how did it, mm-hmm. how did it open up new opportunities for black people in, in when it came to employment?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, that is a brief moment. It really yeah. is a very brief moment. Uh, but when you look at the statistics on black uh, population, movement into skilled mm-hmm. jobs uh and into jobs that are defined as middle class yes uh the nu- the numbers increase significantly mm-hmm. i don't have the figures in my head right now but the and and also the numbers increase significantly from the bottom mm-hmm. up you know like it's not just that there's mobility only middle class yeah there was great mobility out of the black working class into what would be considered a professional mm-hmm. and you know, sort of business uh, yeah. class jobs. So, so, but it's a it's a brief moment, um, uh, Lee, and it's one of the most difficult transitions to try to really um, navigate and articulate yes. uh, in a book. But I, I try to make it clear that the civil rights movement. Was a success in significant right. ways, and that we can't, we can't, you know, dismiss. Just like you
1: were saying about slavery know, this, earlier, that something real changes. Yeah,
0: right. Yes, that's right, <laughs> and that's what I argue for. This, yeah. you're right. That's exactly. It's an argument that. Um, but then, pretty quickly, and also the laws, you know, you start getting uh, court decisions that support uh, affirmative yeah. action, uh, support more vigorous movements to eliminate the color line um, that call labor unions to task for their discriminatory yeah. policy, call businesses to task. So there's a moment there where the state seems to be a real ally for Black yeah. people, federal state in particular. And so I'd I like to make that point. Uh, but that moment of opportunity closed yeah. pretty quickly. Um, and it's, it's a devastating um, closing yeah. um, because african-americans uh just as they're making that breakthrough uh that whole well dude that's where i want to go next yeah i mean i feel like (laughs) no reading
1: your book i experienced Mm -hmm. like this acute irony that i think i i knew about and even i would say even knew very well on a like Mm -hmm. a purely intellectual level But then it just hit me on this emotional level, like a gut punch, you know, and the irony is, you know, you write that by 1970, Mm -hmm. the modern black freedom, and I already Mm -hmm. quoted this modern black freedom struggle had demolished Mm -hmm. the Jim Crow order. Well, then we're into the 1970s when the U.S. economy hits the skids. By the late 1970s, we have a fresh wave of deindustrialization and plat cultures. So the modern black freedom struggle undermines, you know, it doesn't completely destroy, but it undermines a terrible system of, of oppression but then it's right into real economic hardship, right?
0: Exactly, exactly. And that's that's part of the African-American story, historically, you know, the way you make certain strides forward and then you hit this Mm. brick wall, you face another uh, crisis of, of, um, you know, survival. And uh, yeah, and see, right now, Lee, I think that what we're going to have to do, we're going to have to... Um, revamped this narrative a little bit um you know I wrote this book, finished this book in around 2018, yeah. right um, I think now, in the context of knowing more about how the post-industrial period is unfolding, mm-hmm. um, we and I, in, in my book, let's just say I tended to focus on um, de-industrialization, and the downside of that process for black workers, yeah. they start to enter the service industry, right. a low wage, few benefits, uh, very, very difficult jobs yeah. you know, to 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 navigate. And they suffer. That, that's sort of the story right, right there. And they suffer. Not without that. They,
1: they, as you point out, they're, they're exactly. reacting. They have agency. They're doing things. You draw on the literature exactly. to, to tell that story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But here's the other thing. Um, Recently, I'm working on something with another scholar, Mm -hmm. three scholars, in fact, is another book on an edited collection of essays on the black urban experience. And one of the arguments that um, our essay makes, and you know Clarence Lang. No, I don't. Clarence Lang is an African-American historian who wrote a book on St. Louis. And uh, Clarence has brought to our attention a body of work on Latino history, uh-huh. uh, like late 20th, early 21st century, uh, where scholars are beginning uh, to look at this deindustrialization yes. uh, from the vantage point of how African-Americans, Latino workers, working at the bottom, they were not only suffering from the downside of the industrial economy, but they were fueling the revival of the new economy. Mm. And that's a big, big, huh. big difference in yeah. argument. And um, the new the new economy means get,
1: different things in different circles. So what's it mean here?
0: Yeah. It, it means the jobs that are fueling the health Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. uh-huh. Yeah. And in Pittsburgh, uh, you yeah, got- Yeah, Gabriel Weinitz book system. and stuff you, like that. Yep. You, you, you got it. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and he makes that argument yeah. too, that black people are working. And so- But really, that's an argument to be pushed more explicitly is that um, that black people, again, helping to fuel the economy totally uh, in ways that people don't often they don't often. Oh, yeah. The
1: home health care workers are predominantly minority folks and they're not well paid. And like it's a real issue. Right. You know, I go ahead, Joe. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But I'm going to say, but to treat that as a way of fueling the economic vitality yes. of upmc oh yeah as opposed to, yeah, you know yeah. as opposed to just um forcing blacks into another era of poverty those are two different dynamics around the same issue yes. right and so that's why i think you know just moving back and forth between these different processes yes. is going to be very important. i totally
1: agree with you yeah. okay yeah i mean i okay. still I grew Uh up. I grew up in Joliet, Illinois. I don't know if I ever talked to you about this. So, um,
0: I I, I didn't know you were from Joliet, but when I was in Evanston, Illinois, as an undergraduate, I learned about the prison.
1: Yes, yes, the two prisons, Joliet and Stateville. Yeah, that was our economy. Yeah, that's
0: that's the only thing I understood (laughs) about Joliet. So it was an industrial. It was a steel
1: town. um, A very racially diverse place. It was a very urban place. it, okay. My high school had about two thousand kids in it, and uh, it was about one third okay. white, one third black, and one third Latino. And oh, and is s- that right? So, oh, so yes. this is you know there was a lot of poverty by the ninety you know the nineties when I was uh, I was a teenager. Okay. Um, but it, this okay. is what kind of what drives my, I care about this stuff because, you know, I come from a very particular yeah. place and I saw uh, people struggling okay. and, you know, this is kind of drives my, um, my, my whole interest. Okay. And, and I also am working on a, a research project. It has this kind of funny working title called A Brief History of Shit Jobs, which is a, like the rise of like bad, oh, yeah. you know, bad oh. employment <laughs> since the <laughs> 70s, basically. <laughs> So, yeah. you know, one of the uh, stories I've really gotten interested in, and I wanted to get your take, because it's something you've been thinking about for a long time, is I've become interested in debates in the 80s and 90s about kind of urban, black, ghetto stuff, like William Julius Wilson's yeah. When Work Disappears, mm-hmm. you know, eventually you have yeah. Thomas Segrew's, uh, you know, The Origins of the Urban Crisis mm-hmm. book. And I was actually reading right. Joe Trotter in in this edited volume, <laughs> the Underclass Debate: Views yeah. from History. Um, and you know, and, oh, yeah, and yeah. so there's this whole debate, you know, like the deindustrialization has yeah. given birth to this new new underclass yeah. that was like, you know, like right. the emphasis. So I just yeah. wonder, you know, and you deal with yeah. it in the interpretive essay, the essay on sources. Yeah. I just wonder
0: where do you, where yeah. do you think
1: this kind of story comes down? Where are you at with this story at this point?
0: about the, the urban, um de- yeah, and the and the and yeah.
1: uh, the underclass and all these kinds of debates.
0: Yeah. Um yeah, I I I think that um one of the things about the underclass um debate that Wilson in a way initiated, right. you know, uh, is that um initially it did the same thing that some of these earlier these other earlier studies did and that was to ignore yeah. the agency of the very poor people that they were talking about. That that was my big yeah, beat yeah, with yeah. some of the the earlier um but then Wilson came back with a a volume called When Work Disappeared. Yeah, you that's know that the one book?
1: I just quoted. Yeah, yeah, I love that book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's what <laughs> I thought.
0: Okay. The, the other one was the truly disadvantaged. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Um but then that one gives a little more attention to the experiences of the workers right. uh, and the poor, you know, uh, and also an more ethnographic, yeah. right? A more ethnographic uh, perspective. So so my, my thinking is that um, we need to do more with the issue from the vantage point of those yes. people who are defined in those terms, yeah. you know, and to really flesh that out. And also to not treat them as Permanently divorced from the workplace um, because they are, you know, informal, under the table. Work is an ongoing part of their lives. Uh, And uh, so almost all of them are working uh, in some form. uh, So to treat them as a segment. Uh, divorced from the workplace, I think is totally. uh, problematic. We have a trouble dealing um, with
1: transiency, like you said earlier. Uh, just in terms yeah, of thinking, we have yeah. trouble dealing with it, I think, you know?
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right. Do you know a book on Milwaukee called um,
1: Evicted? Yes, I know that book. That's a great book. Okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think it's relevant to yeah. this story that we're talking about, but that one... Is a great victimization dimension to yeah. all that. Um, but I, there may be some things, I'll have to take another look, but there may be things in there that give you a sense of the agency of these yeah. people. But I, I read that book quickly um, for a perspective, you know, in yeah. this period and and i picked up more 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 of the downside than than anything i hear you yeah i mean Um, i
1: think that's fair i mean i think it's about these how these structures are leading to suffering and harm Mm -hmm. right um and but we don't you know some of the other books you write about in the sources essay really clearly focus on this agency thing and are focusing on how people are reacting and 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 working with their systems they're living in yeah yeah
0: you know i had one other question for oh go ahead joe no, no no i just yeah. wanted to say yeah so th- so i think my perspective on this is still Involving. taking yeah. shape okay yeah. because because we're still in yeah, the that's moment right. right we're not quite we're not quite out yeah. of that de-industrial this, this new configuration is no it's still unfolding no i yeah. think it's feeding all the okay.
1: trump and all this other crap very much you know yeah. and um yeah mm-hmm. um well you know yeah. i mean i think you know, the other question I wanted to ask you about, I, I, one of the people I've started focus on in a, as a character in this new um, book project is actually Obama. But I'm, I'm, I'm starting okay. with his early days as a community organizer because hey, the organization okay. he worked oh. on with in Calumet in the yeah. south side was basically f- yeah. focused on deindustrialization and job loss in black communities, yeah. right? and okay, so i think i'm really okay. interested in his early work you know as a, as a okay. young guy Very and, and so i don't know uh, yeah i, like I mean it. do you have any tips for me on on things i should look at oh in? no i think
0: you <laughs> i think you're already on the right, right track right. I, yeah because i i thought about obama's election and his work yeah. uh and i you know i i didn't get into it as much as you're going to but i i, I felt that his Candidates. it was grounded in the working class. Yes. You know, the way the working class uh were experiencing certain issues and the way they could be mobilized uh as voters in this yeah. uh new politics, you know. So I'm glad to see you do yeah. that. Yeah. I mean I think uh, there's unfortunate well, like parts of him,
1: like he becomes in the, by two thousand six mm-hmm. he gives this or two thousand six, yeah, he gives this talk, Twenty First Century Schools for Twenty First Century Jobs, which is kind of really buys into like education as the answer to all social problems in a way that you know there's there's some unfortunate sides of his story too but i just think he's a fascinating character to kind of trace through the time oh man so yeah
0: well look i'm delighted to hear you talk about this project this this i think is very worthwhile and i think you are very well situated to do that kind of work um so yeah so, you know, this has just been a delightful conversation with yeah, you. Yeah, you do, too. Uh, and, yeah, and, and when you, you know, have something you've published or want me to look at, I'll be happy to yeah. look at Yeah, can you tell, so yeah. can you
1: just, yeah. to end up, can you just tell people what you're working on now? You kind of talked about this edited volume you're working on. Do you have any other irons in the fire
0: right now? Yes, I do. I have a number of things that I'm working on. A lot of this is synthesis yeah, work. Yeah, you're you know, good at it. Trying so good. to draw together, you <laughs> are trying to draw together whether... The most important one is the uh, book on uh, African-American health care and and historical perspective. Uh, I I did a a short essay for a book called The Pandemic Divide, and it's a collection of essays that tries to make sense of the impact of the pandemic on Black communities. Uh, And that essay um, looks at African-American work. Yeah. Uh, from the colonial era, it builds on the uh, workers on arrival book, but it delves deeply into the rural nice. experiences yeah. of blacks uh, in, in 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 the first part of the book, and talks about cotton, rice, tobacco, sugar, uh, all those jobs, and connect those jobs to a deleterious health Absolutely. impact yeah. on black workers. Yeah. And then I take it to the um you know the early emancipation period through to the present. And it it, is the consistent focus is on, you know, we talk a lot about um, the pandemic has to be understood in historical perspective, Mm -hmm. but often people just invoke history. They don't really nail the historical study down and try to systematically uh, trace out the impact of that historical process on the present. So that's what I try to do in that essay. But then I'm now trying to flesh that essay out into a short yeah. book uh, that talks about black health across uh-huh. time, but using the lens of occupational hazards as a real uh, dimension yeah. uh, that we need to pay attention to. So that's that's one item. Um, the other one, I want to talk about all the things that may never <laughs> come to fruition, but we are yeah. we are doing <laughs> we are doing a, a book on um, uh, it's a collection of essays on black life in America. Uh-huh from the colonial period to the present. So there's uh, about 10 specialized essays on different aspects of Black Mm. life over that period of time. And we try to use this book to say what next for Black urban history. Uh, And the University of Pittsburgh Press has given us a contract. Uh, Quite a long time ago, we should say, and so we've just had to keep adding to this yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now now we're at the point where we're saying by the 1st of 2023, we hope to be able to send it to the press and let them um, make some decisions about you know, publication.
1: Amazing, Joe. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh-huh. Workers on Arrival is such a great book. And I really appreciate you thank taking you. the time.
0: Oh, well, thank you. It's been a joy. It's been a pleasure. And best wishes for all the work you are doing. And thanks for doing this work.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. Check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and is supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are hosted in the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the Media Production Manager with Virginia Tech Publishing and serves as producer and sound engineer for Peoples and Things. Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.